Chapter Two of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unleavened Bread by Robert Grant. Chapter Two. The match was thoroughly agreeable to Mrs. Farley, Selma's aunt and nearest relation who with her husband presided over a flourishing poultry farm in Wilton. She was an easy-going, friendly spirit, with a sharp but not wide vision, who did not believe that a likelier fellow than Louis Babcock would come wooing were her niece to wait a lifetime. He was hearty, comical, and generous, and was said to be making money fast in the varnish business. In short, he seemed to her an admirable young man, with a stock of common sense, and high spirits eminently serviceable for a domestic venture. How full of fun he was, to be sure! It did her good to behold the tribute his appetite paid to the buckwheat cakes with cream and other tempting viands she set before him, pleasing contrast to Selma's starveling diet, and the hearty smack with which he enforced his demands upon her own cheeks as his mother-in-law apparent, argued an affectionate disposition burly, rosy-cheeked, good-natured? Was he not the very man to dispel her niece's vagaries and turn the girl's morbid cleverness into healthy channels? Selma, therefore, found nothing but encouragement in her choice at home, so by the end of another three months they were made man and wife, and had moved into that little house in Benham, which had attracted Babcock's eye. Benham, as has been indicated, was in the throes of bustle and self-improvement, before the war it had been essentially unimportant, but the building of a railroad through the town, and the discovery of oil wells in its neighborhood, had transformed it in a twinkling into an active and spirited center. Selma's new house was on the edge of the city, in the van of real estate progress, one of a row of small but ambitious-looking dwellings, over the dark yellow clapboards of which the architect had let his imagination run rampant in scrolls and flourishes. There was fancy-colored glass in a sort of rose window over the front door, and lozenges of fancy glass here and there in the façade. Each house had a little grass plot, which Babcock, in his case, had made appertuant to a metal stag, which seemed to him the finishing touch to a cozy and ornamental home. He had done his best with all his heart, and the future was before them. Babcock found himself radiant over the first experiences of married life. It was just what he had hoped, only better. His imagination in entertaining an angel had not been unduly literal. And it was a constant delight and source of congratulation to him to reflect over his pipe on the lounge after supper that the charming piece of flesh and blood sewing or reading demurely close by was the divinity of his domestic hearth. There she was to smile at him when he came home at night, and enable him to forget the cares and dross of the varnish business. Her presence across the table added a new zest to every meal, and improved his appetite. In marrying, he had expected to cut loose from his bachelor habits, and he asked for nothing better than to spend every evening alone with Selma, varied by an occasional evening at the theater, and a drive out to the Farleys now and then for supper. This, with the regular Sunday service at Reverend Henry Glynn's church, rounded out the weeks to his perfect satisfaction. He was conscious of feeling that the situation did not admit of improvement, for though when he measured himself with Selma, 
Babcock was humble-minded. A cheerful and critical optimism was the ruling characteristic of his temperament. With health, business fortune, and love all on his side, it was natural to him to regard his lot with complacency, especially as to all appearances this was the sort of thing Selma liked also. Presently, perhaps, there would be a baby, and then their cup of domestic happiness would be overflowing. Babcock's long, ungratified yearnings for the things of the spirit were fully met by these cozy evenings, which he would have been glad to continue to the crack of doom. To smoke and sprawl and read a little and exchange chit-chat was poetry enough for him. So contented was he that his joy was apt to find an outlet in ditties and whistling. He possessed a slightly tuneful, rollicking knack at both, a proceeding which commonly culminated in his causing Selma to sit beside him on the sofa, and be made much of to the detriment of her toilette. As for the bride, so dazing were the circumstances incident to the double change of matrimony and adaptation to city life, that her judgment was in suspension. Yet though she smiled and so demurely she was thinking, the yellow clapboarded house and metal stag, and a maid of all work at her beck and call were gratifying at the outset and made demands upon her energies. Selma's position in her father's house had been chiefly ornamental and societal. She had been his companion and nurse, had read to him, and argued with him, but the mere household work had been performed by an elderly female relative, who recognized that her mind was bent on higher things. Nevertheless, she had never doubted that when the time arrived to show her capacity as a housewife, she would be more than equal to the emergency. Assuredly, she would for one of the distinguishing traits of American womanhood was the ability to perform admirably, with one's own hand, many menial duties, and yet be prepared to shine socially with the best. Still the experience was not quite so easy as she expected, even harassing and mortifying. Fortunately, Lewis was more particular about quantity than quality where the table was concerned. And after all, food and domestic details were secondary considerations in a noble outlook. It would have suited her never to be obliged to eat, and to be able to leave the care of the house to the hired girl. But that being out of the question, it became incumbent on her to make those obligations as simple as possible. However, the possession of a new house and gay fittings was an agreeable realization. At home, everything had been upholstered in black horsehair and regard for material appearance, obscured for her by the tension of her introspective tendencies. Lewis was very kind, and she had no reason to reproach herself as yet for her choice. He had insisted that she should provide herself with ample and more stylish wardrobe, and though the invitation had interested her but mildly, the effect of shrewdly made and neatly fitting garments on her figure had been a revelation. Like the touch of a man's hand, fine raiment had seemed to her hitherto almost repellent, but it was obvious now that anything which enhanced her effectiveness could not be dismissed as valueless. To arrive at definite conclusions in regard to her social surroundings was less easy for Selma. Benham, in its rapid growth, had got beyond the level simplicity of Westfield and Wilton, and was already confronted by the stern realities which baffle the original ideal in every American city. We like as a nation to cherish the illusion that extremes of social condition do not exist even in our large communities, and that the plutocrat and the sales lady 
the learned professions and the proletariat associate on a common basis of equal virtue intelligence and culture and yet although benham was comparatively young and an essentially american city there were very marked differences in all of these respects in its community topographically speaking the starting point of benham was its water course twenty years before the war benham was merely a cluster of frame houses in the valley of the limpid peaceful river nye at that time the inhabitants drank of the nye taken at a point below the town for there was a high fall which would have made the drawing of water above less convenient this they were doing when selma came to benham although every man's hand had been raised against the nye which was the nearest and hence for a community in hot haste the most natural receptacle for dye-stuffs ashes and all the outflow from woollen mills pork factories and oil-yards and it ran the color of glistening bean soup from time to time as the city grew the drawing point had been made a little lower where the stream had regained a portion of its limpidity and no one but wiseacres and biddy bodies questions its wholesomeness benham at that time was too preoccupied and too proud of its increasing greatness to mistrust its own judgments in matters hygienic artistic and educational there came a day later when the river rose against the city and an epidemic of typhoid fever convinced a reluctant community that there were some things which freeborn americans did not know intuitively then there were public meetings and a general indignation movement and presently under the guidance of competent experts lake mohonk seven miles to the north was secured as a reservoir just to show how the temper of the times has changed and how sophisticated in regard to hygienic matters some of the good citizens of benham in these, in these latter days have become it is worthy of mention that though competent chemists declared lake mohonk to be free from contamination there are those now who use so-called mineral spring waters in preference notably miss flagg the daughter of old joel flagg once the miller and at the end when the babcocks set up their household gods one of the oil magnates of benham he drank the bean-colored nigh to the day of his death and died at eighty but she carries a carboy of spring water with her personal baggage wherever she travels and is perpetually solicitous in regard to the presence of arsenic and wallpapers into the bargain verily the world has wagged apace in benham since selma first looked out at her metal stag and the surrounding landscape ten years later the benham home beautifying society took in hand the nigh and those who drained into it and by means of garbage consumers disinfectants and filters judiciously arranged shrubbery converted its channel and banks into quite a respectable citizen's paradise but even at that time the industries on either side of the nye which flowed from east to west were forcing the retail shops and the residences further and further away to illustrate again from the flag family just before the war joel flagg built a modest house less than a quarter of a mile from the southerly bank of the river expecting to end his days there and was accused by contemporary censors of an intention to seclude himself in magnificent isolation about this time he had yielded to the plea of his family that every other building in the street had been given over to trade and that they were stranded in a social sahara of factories so like the easy-going yet soaring soul that he was he had moved out two miles to what was known as the river drive where the nye accomplishes a broad sweep to the south 
there an ambitious imported architect glad of such an opportunity to speculate in artistic effects had built for him a conglomeration a feudal castle and an old colonial mansion in all the grisly bulk of signal failure considering our ideals it is a wonder that no one has provided a law forbidding the erection of all the architecturally attractive or sumptuous houses in one neighbourhood it ought not to be possible in a republic for such a state of affairs to exist as existed in benham that is to say all the wealth and fashion of the city lay to the west of central avenue which was so literally the dividing line that if a benhamite were referred to as living on that street the conventional inquiry would be on which side and if the answer were on the east the inquirer would be apt to say oh with a cold inflection which suggested a ban no benhamite has ever been able to explain precisely why it should be more credible to live on one side of the same street than the other but i have been told by clever women who were good americans besides that this is one of the subtle truths which baffle the gods and democracies alike central avenue has long ago been appropriated by the leading retail dry-goods shop huge establishments where everything from a set of drawing-room furniture to a hairpin can be bought under a single roof but at that time it was the social artery everything to the west was new and assertive and then came the shops and the business centre and to the east were tom dick and harry michael isaac and pietro the army of citizens who worked in the mills oil yards and pork factories and to the north across the river on the farther side of more manufacturing establishments was poland so called a settlement of the poles to reach whom now there are seven bridges of iron there were but two bridges then one of wood and journeys across them had not yet been revealed to philanthropic young women eager to do good. Selma's house lay well to the southwest of Central Avenue, far enough removed from the River Drive and the Flag Mansion to be humble, and yet near enough to be called looking up. Their row was complete and mainly occupied, but the locality was a building, and in the process of making acquaintance, and so many strangers had come to benham that even babcock knew but few of their neighbors without formulating definitely how it was going to happen selma had expected to be received with open arms into a society eager to recognize her salient qualities but apparently at first glance everybody's interest was absorbed by the butcher and grocer the dressmaker and the domestic hearth that is the other people in their row seemed content to do as they were doing the husbands went to town every day town which lay in the murky distance and their wives were friendly enough but did not seem to be conscious either of voids in their own existence or of the privilege of her society to be sure they dressed well and were suggestive in that but they looked blank at some of her inquiries and appeared to feel their days complete if after the housework had been done and the battle fought with the hired girl they were able to visit the shopping district and pour over fabrics in case they could not buy them some were evidently looking forward to the day when they might be so fortunate as to possess one of the larger houses of the district a mile away and figure among what they termed society people there were others who in their satisfaction with this course of life referred with a touch of self-righteousness to the dwellers on the river drive as deserving reprobation on account of a lack of serious purpose this criticism appealed to selma and consoled her in a measure for the half-mortification with which she had begun to realize that she was not so much of account as she had expected. 
At least there were people not very far distant from her block who were different somehow from her neighbors, and who took part in social proceedings in which she and her husband were not invited to participate. Manifestly, they were unworthy and un-American. It was a comfort to come to this conclusion, even though her immediate surroundings, including the society of those who had put the taunt into her thoughts, left her unsatisfied. Some relief was provided at last by her church. Babcock was by birth an Episcopalian, though he had been lack in his interest during early manhood. This was one of the matters which he had expected marriage to correct and he had taken up again, not merely with resignation, but complacency, the custom of attending service regularly. Dr. White had been a controversial Methodist, but since his wife's death, and especially since the war, he had abstained from religious observances, and had argued himself somewhat far afield from the fold of orthodox belief. Consequently, Selma, though she attended church at Westfield, when her father's ailments did not require her presence at home, had been brought up to exercise her faculties freely on problems of faith, and to feel herself a little more enlightened than the conventional worshipper. Still, she was not adverse to following her husband to the Reverend Henry Glynn's church. The experience was another revelation to her, for service at Westfield had been eminently severe and unadorned. Mr. Glynn was an Englishman, a short, stout, strenuous member of the Church of England, with a broad accent and a predilection for ritual but enthusiastic and earnest. He had been tempted to cross the ocean by the opportunities for preaching the gospel to the heathen, and he had fixed on Benham as a vineyard where he could labor to advantage. His event had been a success. He had awakened interest by his fervor and by his methods. The pew taken by Babcock was one of the last remaining, and there was already talk of building a larger church to replace the chapel where he ministered. Choir boys, elaborate vestments, and genuflections were novelties in the protestant worship of benham and attracted the attention of many almost weary of plainer forms of worship especially as those manifestations of color were effectively supplemented by evident sincerity of spirit on the part of their pastor nor were his energy and zeal confined to purely spiritual functions the scope of his church work was practical and social he had organized from the congregation societies of various sorts to relieve the poor bible classes and evening reunions with the members of the parish were urged to attend in order to become acquainted mr glynn's manner was both hearty and pompous to him there was no church in the world but the church of england and it was obvious that as one of the clergy of that church he considered himself to be no mean man but apart from this serious intellectual foible with respect to his own relative importance he was a stimulating Christian and citizen within his lights. His active, crusading, and emotional temperament just suited the seething propensities of Benham. His flock comprised a few of the residents of the River Drive district, among them the Flags, but was a fairly representative mixture of all grades of society, including the poorest. These last were specimens under spiritual duress rather than free worshippers, and it was a constant puzzle to the reverend gentleman why, in the matter of attendance, they, metaphorically speaking, sickened and died. It had never been so in England. Bonnets, responded one day Mrs. Hallett Taylor, who had become Mr. Glynn's leading ally in parish matters, and was noted for her executive ability. She was an engaging but clear-headed soul who went straight to the point. I do not fathom your meaning, said the pastor a little loftily, 
for the suggestion sounded flippant. It hurts their feelings to go to church where their clothes are shabby compared with those of the rest of the congregation. Yes, but in God's chapel, dear lady, all such distinctions should be forgotten. They can't forget, and I don't blame them much, poor things, do you? It's the free-born American spirit. There now, Mr. Glynn, you were asking me yesterday to suggest someone for junior warden. Why not Mr. Babcock? They're newcomers and seem available people. Mr. Glynn's distress at her first question was merged in the interest inspired by her second, for his glance had followed hers until it rested on the Babcocks, who had just entered the vestry to attend the social reunion. Selma's face wore its worried archangel aspect, but she was on her good behavior, and proudly on her guard against social impertinence, but she looked very pretty, and her compact, slight figure indicated a busy way. I will interrogate him, he answered. I have observed them before, and I can't quite make out the wife. It is almost a spiritual face, and yet... Just a little hard and keen, broke in Mrs. Taylor upon his hesitation. She is pretty, and she looks clever. I think we can get some work out of her. Thereupon she sailed gracefully in the direction of Selma. Mrs. Taylor was from Maryland. Her husband, a physician, had come to Benham at the close of the war to build up a practice, and his wife had aided him by her energy and graciousness to make friends. Unlike some Southerners, she was not indolent, and yet she possessed all the ingratiating, spontaneous charm of well-bred women from that section of the country. Her tastes were aesthetic and ethical rather than intellectual, and her special interest at the moment was the welfare of the church. She thought it desirable that all of the elements of which the congregation was composed should be represented on the committees, and Selma seemed to her the most obviously available person from the class to which the Babcocks belonged. I want you to help us, she said. I think you have ideas. We need a woman with sense and ideas on our committee to build the new church. Selma was not used to easy grace and sprightly spontaneity. It affected her at first as much as the touch of a man. But just as in that instance the experience was agreeable, life was too serious a thing in her regard to lend itself casually to lightness, and yet she felt instinctively attracted by this lack of self-consciousness and self-restraint. Besides, here was an opportunity such as she had been yearning for. She had met Mrs. Taylor before and knew her to be the presiding genius of the congregation, and it was evident that Mrs. Taylor had discovered her value. Thank you, she said gravely but cordially. That is what I should like. I wish to be of use. I shall be pleased to serve on the committee. It will be interesting, I think. I have never helped build anything before. Perhaps you have? No, said Selma slowly. Her tone conveyed the impression that, though her abilities had never been put to that precise test, the employment seemed easily within her capacity. Ah, I'm sure you will be suggestive, said Mrs. Taylor. I am right anxious that it shall be a credit in an architectural way, you know. Mr. Glynn, who had followed with more measured tread, now mingled his hearty bass voice in the conversation. His mental attitude was friendly but inquisitorial, as seemed to him to befit one charged with the cure of souls. He proceeded to ask questions, beginning with inquiries conventional and domestic, but verging presently on points of faith. Babcock, to whom they were directly addressed, stood the ordeal well, revealing himself as flattered, contrite, and zealous to avail himself of the blessings of the church. 
he admitted that he had been lax in his spiritual duties. "'We come every Sunday now,' he said buoyantly, with a glance at Selma, as though to indicate that she deserved the credit for his reformation. "'The holy sacrament of marriage has led many souls from darkness into light. "'From the flesh-pots of Egypt to the table of the Lord,' Mr. Glenn answered. "'And you, my daughter,' he added meaningly, "'guard well your advantage.' It was agreeable to Selma that the clergyman seemed to appreciate her superiority to her embarrassed husband, especially as she thought she knew that in England women were not expected to have opinions of their own. She wished to say something to impress him more distinctly with her cleverness, for though she was secretly contemptuous of his ceremonials, there was something impressive in his mandatory zeal. She came near asking whether he held to the belief that it was wrong for a man to marry his deceased wife's sister which was the only proposition in relation to the married state which occurred to her at the moment as likely to show her independence. But she contented herself with saying, with so much of Mrs. Taylor's spontaneity as she could reproduce without practice, we expect to be very happy in your church. Selma, however, supplemented her words with her tense spiritual look. She felt happier than she had for weeks, inasmuch as life seemed to be opening before her. For a few moments she listened to Mr. Glynn unfold his hopes in regard to the new church, trying to make him feel that she was no common woman. She considered it a tribute to her when he took Lewis aside later and asked him to become a junior warden. End of chapter 2